Romans chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that as we look at your word this morning that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to see it clearly, that we would be a church that pursues unity with one another, that does not judge one another on indifferent matters, that knows that, that we are servants of the Lord, that we pursue loving one another, and that we don't have divisiveness that exists among us. Father, that we would have the kind of unity that is between you and your Son, that the world would know that, that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior. Pray that you would help us to love your Word, help us to live out your Word, and we pray that this would be done for your glorious name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, really probably I think a few weeks ago, I said this, that love for one another, our love for one another as the church, is the greatest apologetic or the greatest defense of the faith that Jesus has given to his church. Jesus has given his church. I got this from John chapter 17. So if you'd hold your hands in Romans chapter 14 and turn to John, that's two books back toward the beginning of the Bible. So go two books backwards. You're in Romans, go to Acts and then to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we have the prayer of Jesus. And Jesus is praying to his Father. And he begins by praying directly to his Father. And then he begins to pray for his disciples. And then he prays not only for his disciples or those whom we know as the apostles, but he prays for those who will believe because of their testimony or their word. That's us. In other words, you want to hear what Jesus was praying for you the night before he died? Here it is. Here's Jesus' prayer for you. Look at John chapter 17, 
starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, these only being his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, that's us, may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that, here's the purpose, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You guys hear that? Why is the unity of the church, why is our love for one another the church's greatest apologetic or the church's greatest defense of the faith? Why? Because unity is itself the very nature of God. Yes, He is diverse. God is three persons. There is diversity within God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We refer to Him as the Trinity. But we don't just refer to Him as the Trinity because He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also refer to Him as the Trinity with the unity of God in, in mind, that He is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love one another perfectly and eternally. And they are one in essence and in purpose. They express perfect unity. And God created us to be diverse as well. God created, he said, what did he say? Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. He made us to be diverse, but yet to have relational unity with himself and with one another. That's how he created us. On the sixth day, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He created us to be his people, living in his place, under his rule and blessing, in perfect relational unity with one another, and in perfect love with one another. And the fall messed all that up. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll see what happens in the fall. We know that God has told, Adam, has told Adam and Eve, as he's created them and put them in the Garden of Eden, the first man and first woman, our representative head being Adam, he put them in the Garden of Eden. They were God's people in God's place, the garden, under God's rule and blessing. They were living in perfect relational harmony or unity with God and with one another. And he said, listen, I'm giving you two trees, or multiple trees here, One's the tree of life, all these other trees you can eat from, and then there's one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you are not to eat from that tree. And Satan comes, and Satan says to Eve, you know what, doesn't that fruit look good? It will make you wise. It'll make you like God. And Eve, seeing that the fruit looked good, said, you know what, I'm going to eat it. And then she turns to her husband, who's there with her, and he eats as well. And we have this scene that flows out of it. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. As they ate it, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Because they're ashamed. They have shame before God and before one another. Where there used to be no shame, they now had shame. The relational unity was broken with God and with one another. Continue on. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is what 
God did in harmony relationally with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? Because they're afraid. Where they used to flee to God when he came, where they used to run to him to relate to him, now that they sinned, they were afraid. They ran from him. They hid. This happens, by the way, not only in our relationship with God, but with one another. We are ashamed of our sin, and we hide from one another. That's why we put on masks and pretend to be something we are not. And he goes on, he says this, But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So what happens immediately is blame shifting. Now he blames God, the woman you gave me, and he blames Eve, that woman you gave me. Right? He blame shifts. It's what happens in our relationships now, doesn't it? It's what happens in our relationship even with God. When things go wrong, people start to get angry with God. Start to shift blame away from sin in ourselves and others to him. And we do that as well. Eve continues with this. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, the devil made me do it. It's not my fault. It's him. Blame shifting continues. It's a complete destruction of the unity with God and with one another that existed in the garden because of sin. That's what's happening. And he goes on, and the Lord curses the serpent, but then look down at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then he says this very key verse that has to do with our relationships to this day. Your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, it's not talking about sexual desire here. It's talking about the desire to rule him. Your desire will to be to leave your God-given role and conquer your husband, and he shall rule over you. And uh, instead of lovingly, sacrificially leading you, he will now try to conquer you and put you under his thumb. In other words, your relationship will be wrecked as a result of this. And all other human relationships are wrecked as a result of this. Because we are no longer bearing the image of God in the same way in which we are, when we bear the image of God, we reflect his glory. We reflect his character back to him. Instead of reflecting his character back to him now, we are reflecting a lie. We are walking around the earth reflecting to one another a lie about who God is. Instead of living in the godliness and holiness that is the way God is, we are reflecting to each other sin and brokenness and shame and blame shifting, aren't we? God created us to be in this image. And what happens as a result of these broken relationships? What is the first story you read after Genesis 3? Genesis 4. And what happens in Genesis 4? Cain, the older brother, kills his younger brother Abel. Kills him. He murders him. Relationships have been completely wrecked as a result of sin and fall. He murders another man because he hates the image of God, because he's jealous, envious, prideful, 
See, they were no longer, we were no longer God's people in God's place or presence under God's rule and blessing in perfect relational unity and love for one another. No longer were we that. We are now, talking about in our unbelieving state, now God's enemies, hating one another and being hated by one another. Just, just look around you at the broken relationships in your life. Look at the broken relationships in others' lives. There is no peace. We attack one another. We become envious of one another. We please one another, but not for one another's good, but for our own good. How, how many times have your relationships been torn apart because of your intolerance for one another? Because of your impatience with one another? Because of your lack of love for one another? Because of our pride or envy or lack of forgiveness? How many marriages are broken because people, people are incapable of staying in relationships that cost us something? How much easier is it for you to point out the deficiencies in others than it is for you to point out the evidences of God's gracious working happening in the lives of others? Why is that? You know why that is? Because unity and love well reflect the glory of God. And our fallen hearts and Satan hate the glory of God. And so we're opposed to what brings him honor. And one of Satan's greatest weapons is to cause God's people to no longer reflect God's image because of their sin. Satan wants to steal God's glory. So he wants God's creation to reflect a lie about God. And what is the lie he wants to reflect about him? That we are not one. That there is no unity and love as exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He wants us to reflect that lie, not the truth. But God sent his son, he sent Jesus to live perfectly the life that we failed to. He sent Jesus to be God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. He sent Jesus to love God and to love others perfectly because we failed to. To reflect God's image perfectly. To pay our penalty for our sin so that we, if we are united to him through faith, we will be forgiven of our sin, of our failure, and we will be counted righteous. We'll no longer be God's enemies, but his friends. We will again, once again, in Christ, through unity with Jesus and faith, will once again be God's people in God's place or presence, under God's rule or blessing. We will now be God's people who are his friends, who are in relational unity with him and with one another once again. See, Paul understands that. That's why after he articulates the fact that we're sinners under God's wrath, he can say this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see what happened? In spite of our sin, in spite of our pride, in spite of our envy and jealousy and disunity and hatred of God and others, God loved us and sent his son to give us a new life, to adopt us as his sons, to make us his friends, to bring peace between himself and us.
God sought peace with us. God wants to display the glorious Trinitarian unity through his, out his church. You guys hear that? He wants to display the unity that, belongs within the, that is within the Trinity. He wants to display that in his church. So God provided for that in Jesus. And Jesus knows that this unity will be threatened. He knows that that's what Satan will attack us. He will attack us at the very point of our weakness, which is our tendency not to love one another, our tendency to separate from one another rather than to bring to come together with one another. He will attack us right there, and so Jesus prays for our unity. So Jesus prays for our love for one another. He knows Satan will work to undermine unity among God's people. And he knows there is no better testimony that Jesus was sent by the Father than that his people whom he saved love one another and find great unity. That's what he knows. And you know, we see this initially with the church. Go to the book of Acts. After Pentecost happens, if you go to the book of Acts, seriously, turn there. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We see from chapter 2, when the Spirit is first poured out at Pentecost and Peter preaches the gospel, we see an incredible unity and sacrificial love that happens among God's people. It goes all the way from chapter 2 through chapter 4 as the church grows and cares for one another. And look at chapter 4 specifically, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 where we see the culmination of this love that they have for one another. Now the full number of those who believed, that's over 5,000 men at this point, not including women and children. This is a mega church in the truest sense of the word. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were not communists in the sense that they thought the government should impose taking away and redistributing wealth. They held everything in common because they're a church that loved one another and gave everything up for each other. This wasn't forced redistrib redistribution of wealth. This was voluntary redistribution of wealth. They chose to give up for one another. And it says this, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Incredible unity and love for one another. And then we see this guy Joseph, who we later learned his name Barnabas, called Barnabas. Look what he says. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's what the church sees happen. This guy, Barnabas, goes out and sells what he has. And he brings all the money, all the proceeds from that, lays at the apostles' feet. And the church sees this, and the apostles start calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You think, what a glorious time in the church. They're unified. They love one another. They're giving up everything for one another. They are demonstrating the love the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for one another in the church. 
thus making clear to a watching world that the Father did send the Son. And then sin enters the camp. Satan attacks them right at this point. And look at chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's the problem right now. Ananias and Sapphira decide, they see how Barnabas is being extolled. They see how Barnabas is being, you know, talked about how he's a son of encouragement and what a great thing has happened in him. And they say, you know what? We're jealous of that. We're envious of that. And we want that kind of credit for us too. Let's go sell our land, but let's secretly keep back some of the profit. Now listen, Ananias and Sapphira do not have to give up all their money. That is not a requirement anywhere in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira's problem is not that they didn't give everything. It's that they pretended that they did so they could, get the kind of, they could get the kind of encouragement toward them, the kind of praise that Barnabas was getting. That's their problem. Look what happens here. But Peter, verse 3 of chapter 5, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have done whatever you want with it. Why is it you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. Here's the problem. You have kept it back, and you have done it. You've done this so that you will look good. You're not sacrificing for your love for the church or for these people in need. You're sacrificing for yourself. Then he goes on, and this is what happens next. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. God struck him down. This was a young church beginning to develop, and Satan tried to attack them at the point of unity by bringing disunity, by bringing a lack of love, and only a concern for self, self-exaltation, pride, and envy. And God is serious about unity in his church. You know, the New Testament pulse, if you take the pulse of the New Testament letters of the church, over and over and over again, you hear the authors talk about the unity of the church, their love for one another. In fact, in Corinth, one of their major problems was they didn't love one another. There was disunity. And God was so serious about it that he was actually saying this is a sin that leads to death. You cause disunity in my body, I will literally take you out. That's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you're in Acts, you go to Romans and then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. But in the following instructions, what Paul's saying to this church, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. You hear that? When the church at Corinth, this is the Apostle Paul, who believed probably more than any of us will ever believe in the God-blessedness of the congregation of God's people coming together and corporately worshiping him. And he actually tells Corinth, when you come together for corporate worship, it's actually to your detriment. 
Why? Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. There are divisions among you. Actually, the rich were oppressing the poor. They were taking food that, for themselves, chowing down on it, and then not leaving anything for the poor. They were looking down on the people. They weren't loving them sacrificially. They were bringing disunity. There were also divisions among other issues. But this is the main one he's dealing with here. Go down to verse 28. He's talking about communion, this famous passage we've all heard about taking communion together. And then verse 28, he says this, let a person, when he's coming to communion at the Lord's table, supper, says, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You're dying because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. Because you are not discerning the body of the Lord. You are a person who is rejecting the gospel truths, and you are causing disunity in the body, and you're dying from it. Look what he says in verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. He is so serious about unity in the church that some of them are actually dying as a result of causing disunity and mocking the Lord's table in doing so. See, this concern for unity, to keep unity in the church, is Paul's concern in Romans 14 and 15. So you can turn back there now because that was all introduction to this text. It's Paul's concern for unity in Romans 14 and 15. Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13, Paul is addressing the need for unity. And we will spend the next three weeks on this long passage He's just in chapter 12 and 13 given us a serious diatribe on our need to love one another in the church, on our need to love our enemies, on our need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And now he says, I'm going to give you some specific application for how that love works out in the midst of disagreement. Because I know that there is diversity in this church. I know there's diversity in this body, and as a result there will be differing opinions. As a result, there will be disagreement. And I want you to know how the love I've just spoken of to you for two chapters, I want you to know how that love works out in disagreement. Paul does not expect uniformity, where everyone says the same thing and looks the same way. He expects unity, where although we have disagreements, although we have differences, we still pursue love for one another, and we put them aside because the gospel of Jesus Christ is central. And so he lays down multiple principles regarding unity and and disagreement in this section. I want to look at the first section of this chapter 14, 1 through 12, and consider three preliminary observations. I'm going to give them to you fairly quickly. Three preliminary observations. The first one is this. He says in 14.1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Who is this weaker brother? Why is he called the weaker brother? I think a lot of times when we start talking about weaker brother language in the church, you know, don't cause your weaker brother to stumble, which we'll deal with more next week. 
we think the weaker brother means someone who's weak-willed or weak in character. You know that guy in the church who struggles with alcoholism, so don't drink around him because you can cause your weaker brother to stumble. Because he's weaker in the sense in our minds, in character or in willpower. Now, I'm not telling you, go drink around the person who struggles with alcohol and make him stumble. But what I am going to say is, that really is not what Paul's talking about here. Nor is it what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8 with the weaker brother. What is he talking about then? The weaker brother is one who is weak in faith. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what his weakness looks like. Verse 1, what does he say? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Why would you be quarreling over opinions? Because his weakness in some way concerns a disagreement of an issue of human opinion, not God's clear word. In other words, your disagreement with him has nothing to do with what the word of God clearly says. It has to do with some kind of human opinion. So in some way his weakness is caught up with a disagreement over a human opinion. We know that. Two, verse two, look at what it says. One person believes he may eat anything, That's the strong person in this text, by the way. While the weak person eats only vegetables. In other words, in some way his weakness concerns not eating meat or being a vegetarian. In some way. We'll deal with it more as we go on. Second, look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. In some way, his weakness deals with the fact that he is celebrating certain holidays, and feels compelled to. If he misses celebrating the holiday, he thinks in some way he's in sin. Third thing we know about his weakness, verse 21 of chapter 14, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In some way, his weakness has to do with the drinking of wine. He thinks He cannot drink wine. So what we know is there's a disagreement with the weaker brother between the weak and strong over matters of human opinion. There is a disagreement between the weak and the strong over eating meat, celebrating certain holidays, drinking wine. Third thing, he is the servant of the Lord. Verse 4, look what it says. Who are you, this is speaking to the weak and the strong, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He is the servant of the Lord. And look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. In other words, the one who's keeping the holiday, the weaker brother, he's doing it in in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains from eating this meat, he what? He abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. In other words, what he says is, what we know about this weaker brother is not only is he abstaining from certain foods and wine, and not only is he feeling that he must religiously keep certain holidays on the calendar, not only is he someone we disagree with about matters of opinion, but he is a guy who is a servant of the Lord, who's seeking to honor the Lord in what he does, and who's giving thanks. That's what we know about this weaker brother. In other words, his weakness has nothing to do with a lack of willpower or a lack of character because he has enough willpower to be a vegetarian, to abstain from wine, to keep certain days. He's abiding by his convictions. Further, his weakness is not legalism in the pure sense. 
His weakness is not legalism. It's not like what Paul deals with in Galatia. The church of Galatia, they're saying you have to avoid certain foods. You have to be circumcised so that you can be forgiven by God, so that you can be declared righteous. In other words, it's necessary to your justification, your forgiveness from sins and your declaration of righteousness, that you not eat these certain non-kosher foods. That's what they're saying in Galatia. That is not what's happening in Romans 14 and 15. These people are not saying you're losing, the weak brother is not saying in 14 and 15, you're losing your salvation if you, do, if you do these things. You eat that meat, your salvation is on the line. Why do we know that? Because in Galatia, when the brothers say the same thing, he roundly condemns them and calls it a false gospel. Here he says, don't condemn them. So we know it's not that kind of legalism. The weaker brother here then is the one who is weak in faith. What does that mean then? It means that he doesn't trust the gospel to the extent that the dictates of his conscience have really embraced his liberty. That's what it means. It means he's struggling with the idea that he could really be free to participate in certain activities. It means that he is struggling with the idea that others are really free to participate in certain activities. The weak then are those, the weak in faith here, are those who are missing out on their freedom to enjoy God's good creation to its fullest. That's who they are. They are those who fear the exercise of their liberty will be their undoing or the undoing of another in their walk with Jesus. Hear that? They don't think they'll be damned by it, but they think that it will cause a disunity, some kind of break in their communion with God, that they'll be in sin in some way. They're weak in faith in the gospel. That's what they're weak in faith in. And they cast judgment on people as if God is unable to make those other people who aren't weak in the faith of the gospel as if he's unable to make them stand in the last day. We'll talk more about that. The strong, conversantly in this passage, those who are strong, who Paul addresses in 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The strong are those who have embraced fully the liberty they have in the gospel. That's who they are. However, I think what we might get the misunderstanding of is that somehow Paul is primarily addressing the weak in faith in this passage, and he's not. He's predominantly addressing the strong in faith. And what he's saying to them is, I know some people struggle to embrace their freedom in Christ. I know this is true. And they can be judgmental of those who do embrace their freedom in Christ. However, do not despise them because of it. Instead, welcome them. Which leads to the next question. If a weaker brother in the first century was one who struggled with freedoms like eating meat or drinking wine or feeling the need, the necessity to celebrate certain holidays, what are the freedoms or liberty issues of today? What are the contemporary examples of these kind of liberty issues? The reformers called these liberty issues or, or um, these non-essentials, these things that Scripture does not clearly speak to, they called them um, adiaphora. That was the name for it. Adiaphora, or indifferent matters. They're matters of indifference. And let me be clear about this. You're not free to sin. You are not free to do things like commit adultery or theft or murder. He's not talking about matters that are clearly addressed in Scripture 
as sin is off limits. He's also not only not talking about things that are clearly addressed, he's not talking about things that are clearly necessary, logical conclusions. For example, you can't reject the Trinity. It is a necessary conclusion of Scripture. He's talking about things that are possible logical conclusions. Some of the things that the Scripture doesn't speak clearly to. What is being addressed are what some people might call wisdom issues, right? What some people might call possible logical conclusions or implications of particular doctrines. For example, the people in the first century church, especially the Gentiles who'd come out of idolatry, knew that it was wrong to commit idolatry. They knew that was wrong. And so as a result, they did not want to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. They wanted to avoid that. Why? Because they were afraid. We used to commit this kind of idolatry, so if we eat this meat sacrificed to idols, in some way we're seen as those who are participating in that idolatry once again. And so we want to avoid eating this meat. And Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 8. And he says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to the idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off, excuse me, do not eat and no better off if we do. Hear that? You can eat that meat. What he says is eating that meat sacrificed to idols isn't participating in idolatry. It's a step away from it. But isn't you're free to eat it. However, we struggle with that. And, and I, I make the comment a lot of times in evangelical circles, we talk about the Ten Commandments, and then we have an 11th commandment. It comes out of our implication ethics, or our slippery slope ethics, and here it is. 11th commandment, thou shalt not step on the slippery slope. Right? There it is. That could lead to sin, therefore you better not step on that slope. Listen, and here's how it's played out. If someone worshipped the devil or mistreated that cow... When they, or whatever they did in the process of bringing you that meat, then you're participating in their sin if you eat it. That's exactly what Paul says is no, you're not. You aren't in sin by stepping on the slippery slope, you're in sin by doing something sinful. However, I want to be careful. If your conscience, and Paul will address this, and I'll address this more next week. But if your conscience is pricked by that slippery slope, if stepping on that slippery slope pricks your conscience, you're in sin if you do it. I, I, I know when I was in seminary, one of the things we weren't allowed to do was dance. I, I was married. I don't know why I can't dance, right? Dance with my wife, right? But, but we weren't allowed to. It's a slippery slope. Start dancing, next thing you know, right? So don't dance. Listen. It's not wrong to dance. I mean, there are certain ways I've seen people dance that are definitely wrong, right? But that's not the point. It isn't a sin to dance. But if your conscience is pricked by dancing, then for you it is sin. And Paul addresses you specifically, and we'll talk about it more next week. For you it is sin. So let me give you some contemporary examples of indifferent matters. Now I'm going to go through them quick. Some contemporary examples. Don't write them all down. There's too many and I'm going to go too fast. And I will come back to them. Wedding rings. 
You have to wear a wedding ring. I hear people, because there are some guys that work in the oil field, so they take their wedding ring off so it doesn't get caught in the machinery. And I see people sometimes judge them because they don't have their wedding ring on. Ooh, or what are they, out on the market? It's not very wise. Listen, do you know, a few hundred years ago, the Puritans didn't wear wedding rings because they considered wearing a wedding ring to be sin? Now we flip the whole thing on its head. Holidays. You got a Christmas tree in your house? You're worshiping the God of the tree, aren't you? No, clearly I'm not. We think they're pretty and they smell nice. Is that okay? Last names changing in marriage. You always have to change the woman's last name, right? Or what is wrong with that couple? Well, what if changing that woman's last name because of some business venture they're involved in actually caused them problems? Because it caused thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to be spent to fix years of a business enterprise. Maybe it's not the wisest thing for them to change it. Antidepressants or psychotropic medications. Clearly you have a lack of faith if you take any of those, right? Bible says nothing about that issue. Nothing. Dating versus courting. Man, this was a rage in Christian circles. If you date, you're clearly a sinner. You're supposed to court. None of us really could define what courting is. It was like dating but with your parents on the date. Right? If you want to date some girl's dad, you're welcome to but I think you ought to date the girl. But the point is, that was turned into a sin issue. Alcohol. It's always wrong, right? No. Jesus drank alcohol. Drunkenness is wrong. Plastic surgery, always wrong, right? Scripture says nothing about it. It says don't use your money unwisely. It says don't go into debt on things you can't afford. Don't pursue vanity. Health food. Man, if I really care about the environment, I'm going to go green. If I really care about my family, I might be a vegetarian or I might eat this health stuff because what kind of mom or dad would I be if I let my family eat food that isn't the most healthy possible natural organic food I could find? And incidentally, what kind of parent would you be if you don't? Scripture never addresses that. In fact, it does. All foods are clean. Movies. Some rated R movies are bad. That's true. Amen. Don't see them. Some, not so much. But people say they're all bad. Schooling. You've got to homeschool or clearly you don't know Jesus. Right? Listen. Homeschool, private school, public school. Here's what the people on the other side of the paradigm. If you've got your children in homeschool, you're raising some kind of freak children that no one's going to like not true. Here's what the Bible says. You raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's clear. It never gives you a delivery model. Politics. Democrats really can't be Christians. I hear people say that all the time. Where does it say that in the Bible? Where? Church music styles. This church music style, that's godly. And this one, not so much. Listen, let's stop pretending that there are a-cultural or a-cultural music styles. Every music style is ingrained in some kind of culture. There is no purely biblical musical form. There isn't. 
church programs. Churches that have them are wrong. Churches that don't are so right, or vice versa. Who cares? Building decisions. That church is building a beautiful building, and they're spending so much money on all that beauty for themselves. We're the kind of church that wants to give all our money to missions who really cares for the poor, not like those vain idolaters over there of their building. What? Beauty versus economy in church building. Churches are going to make different decisions. The Bible gives us no clear word. You act in wisdom and you care for one another. You love one another. You maintain unity. These are matters of indifference. Third major point today, and I'm going to try to go through these very quickly. How are we to respond to each other when we differ on indifferent matters? Hear that? How are we to respond to each other when we differ on the indifferent matters, on the matters Scripture doesn't clearly speak to? Let me give you three don'ts and three do's. Here they are. Three don'ts. First, don't quarrel over indifferent matters. Do not quarrel over them. 14.1, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're not to be quarrelsome people. You can debate indifferent matters. That's fine. Debate them. Sometimes Jason and I get together. We debate indifferent matters. As long as our goal in our debate is to build up, to encourage, and not to manipulate or tear down. You understand the distinction? I'm not saying that it's wrong for two brothers or sisters to get together and disagree over an indifferent matter. What I'm saying it is wrong is to do so in a way that causes disunity. Quarreling is out. Second, don't. Don't despise the weaker brother who restricts himself. The one who abstains. Don't despise him. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats... That's the free one. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. I'll talk about this a lot more next week, so I'm not going to spend much more time on it. Don't despise the brother who restricts himself. Third, don't. Don't judge the brother enjoying his freedom. If you are someone who is abstaining from certain things because of an issue of conscience, great. I don't despise you, so don't judge me. If you're someone who doesn't drink alcohol ever because you think it's always wrong for you, Great. I won't despise you, and you don't judge me. That's what he says. Look what he says in verse 3. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. It's for God to, do, to judge those doing things you don't approve of that the Bible doesn't speak of. It's not for you to judge. Three do's. Here they are, the three do's. First, be fully convinced of your own position. Now that's going to sound like the exact opposite of what you might expect me to say. One way to bring unity in disagreement is for each person on each side of the disagreement to be fully convinced of their own position. How does that bring unity? Look what Paul says. He says this, though. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Hold your convictions firmly if you're to get along, Paul says. He doesn't say, hold your convictions more loosely. He commands you to hold them more firmly. Why? First, 
And most important reason is because when you act, you want to act in faith that you're actually honoring God, that this is the best way to do what you think God's called you to do. That's why. Second reason is this. Because it's possible, and this is the part that's hard for us to get a hold of in our immaturity, it's possible on indifferent matters to hold two opposite views and for both parties on each side to behave in a manner that glorifies God. Hear that? It's possible for two different people to take two different views of it and for both of them to glorify God. Look at verse 5 again. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Go to verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. They're both honoring the Lord. Verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, for me, I can eat anything. I can drink wine. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. I can drink the beer. I might go home and have a Heineken right after the sermon because of what you might think about my view on indifferent matters. Right? Just to, I, I can drink it, and you could not drink it. And I would be honoring the Lord by drinking it, and you would be honoring the Lord by abstaining. Hear that? Goes on. He says this in verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever he does not, he, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, the one who doubts, he, he's condemned if he, if he eats. Sin for him, but not for me, Paul says. Second, do. So do, first one is be convinced of your own position. Second, believe the gospel promises. Do believe the gospel promises for your brother. Do believe them. Verse 1, God says to welcome him. Why? Look at verse, the end of verse 3. For God has welcomed him. Look at verse 15 as well. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, what Paul says is, Jesus died to save that brother. God has welcomed him. Who are you to reject him? Hear that? Verse 4, look what he says. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That, here's why he died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, the Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead to be the Lord. He died to save him. Who are you to reject him? He rose from the dead to be his Lord. Who are you to push his servants around? He will return again to judge him. Who are you to judge him? That's his job. He will uphold him in the last day. He says, believe the gospel for your brother. When you don't, when you think you need to judge him or you need to fix him or you need to get your wisdom on this matter, you know what you do. You step in in some way and you say, you know what, brother? 
I don't really trust the gospel for you. I'm afraid that if you don't do just like me on this issue, that you may, you may in fact be damned. I no longer trust that God will uphold you on that last day. Third, do. Do prepare to give an account of your own life before God. Do prepare to give an account of your own life before God. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, now listen to the emphasis here. So then, each of us, each of us, of us, will give an account of himself to God. Hear that? Prepare to give an account of your own life before God. Stop trying to give an account of your brothers. What I want to drive home throughout the next three weeks is that in this issue, Paul continues again and again to drive us back to Jesus and the gospel. Again and again. And what he drives us back to is this. Jesus lived to be a representative for you and for your brother. Jesus died to be the savior of you and your brother. Jesus rose to be the Lord of you and your brother. Jesus ascended to the right hand and ever intercedes for you and for your brother that he might uphold you in the last day. And Jesus will be returning to be the judge of you and your brother. You have no right to ever bring disunity among God's people, ever. Because they belong to Jesus. And he is their Lord. He is their Savior. He will return to be their judge. And to do so on different matters is the gravest sin that Paul's concerned about coming to the church. Let me pray. Father, we, we are thankful. We are thankful that your word so clearly leads us back to the fact that Jesus is the center of it. We pray that we would, we would continue to read your word, to understand your word, to rejoice in it. Father, that we would be people who don't judge our brothers, condemn our brothers. But Father, that we would be a people who recognize that you are their Savior. You are their Lord. You will return to judge them. You are at, your, at the right hand ever interceding for them. You will uphold them. That, Father, we will be fully convinced of our own view. That we will be free to to discuss that with each other, but never in a way that causes division. Father, you would be exalted as we pursue love and unity with one another. So that the world might know that you have sent Jesus, your Son. Pray this in your name. Amen.